Welcome to the New Wild Review, Volume 4, Episode 1, Gratitude, Progress, and Despair. This is a uh, departure from past formats in our podcast, but we've used a lot of different formats, so that shouldn't be too um, concerning. But it is definitely going to be uh, different than any of the previous ones. This is going to be more like a a little bit of a magazine. And uh, including current events from Humboldt Wildlife Care Center. And uh, just, you know, some news and updates. And taking care of some really important business. So uh, I hope you you enjoy the podcast. And I'm uh, looking forward to sharing some of our news. And... uh, and then we have, uh, you know, a longer piece at the end, um, which is the despair part. Um, first thing, though, is, is just to let you know that this is uh, this podcast is being recorded inside of my COVID isolation. Uh, for three and a half years, we kept it out of the clinic. And right now, I am testing positive. And uh, so... That's happening, and uh, we've been very careful, and I feel like I've been very careful, but it uh, snuck into our house through a back door, um, and just uh, dealing with it now. So hopefully this will uh, pass soon, and I will be able to get back out into the uh, real world, but for now, uh, we still have business to take care of. So, uh, first of all, the first item of business is thank you. The summer was very difficult. Uh, We are as busy as ever, busier than last summer, and this is in the middle of just having totally demolished our facility and moving to a new location and not having that new location built yet. Uh, so we went through this summer with a lot less um, infrastructure to take care of our patients than typical, than what we need. And in some ways we were lucky in the caseload that we had allowed us to do that. It could have been worse, you know, if we had gotten, you know, a bunch of baby raptors in. Our abs- the lack of a raptor aviary would have been, a f- a, would have been felt a little bit greater. Um, we also had a loss of staffing that's just due to, you know, it's largely due to the rhythm of Humboldt County and where we are, you know, people graduate and leave. And also for some people, it's very difficult to stay here. You know, healthcare is not that easy to come by and there's a lot of reasons and we lost a lot of staffing. So we went through the summer with a reduced facility and a, a lot of, uh, you know, relatively new staff members who uh, did rise to the occasion, but there was an occasion to rise to. So, um, and through that, needing to build our facility as we were using it, our demand for resources was high. We're busy. It's the busiest time of our year, so there's automatically a high demand for resources, and it's typically a it's a it's a bad time of year in around here for fundraising. It's not a you know, we're not a, uh, 
it's not an online community here in the summertime and getting traction on those sorts of things is more difficult. So by the end of the summer, we were really scraping the bottom of the barrel. And I put out a code red around early September and the community responded and we, uh, it, it really did. So, you know, thank you pe people uh, for contributing, for donating and for doing what you can to help keep our doors open to our wild patients. It's extremely uh, critical that we be here and you making it happen was, uh, you know, it was breathtaking, really. Where we were a month ago to right now is astonishing. And I am extremely grateful to our community for stepping in and making that happen. And, you know, it, you guys did it before, too, when it was time when we needed our down payment to get this place. So uh, I'm not saying I take it for granted that you'll always be there, but please always be there. And thank you very much. I thank you so much. And also just a special shout out to uh, it wasn't just our local community, you know, wildlife rehabilitation. First of all, the California's a big state. You may have heard about that. But even still, the um, wildlife rehabilitation community, we're in touch with our we're in touch with our colleagues up and down the state. We, you know, our our we are a tight knit community. And among environmentalists and, you know, people, people, advocates for the wild, um, that community grows even beyond the, beyond the ranks of wildlife rehabilitators. And um, Mount, Mount uh, Diablo, Mount Diablo Audubon Society contributed to our need um, this month and that was you know it was fantastic it was fantastic to get you know some far-off major support so thank you to the Mount Diablo Audubon Society your generosity is deeply appreciated so in uh, news of the care center this summer was uh well it's winding down now we um we still have about 20 wild babies in care but each day they're growing and soon they're pretty much all going to be released but ah boy what a summer it was to get through with the reduced capacity as i was mentioning it and it was a lot of shuffling it was a lot of improvising and there were a lot of temporary measures and those temporary measures are pretty much coming to an end. And now we have a wonderful, wet, soggy winter to look forward to. We have working outdoors, swinging hammers and driving screws and putting on hardware cloth and basically getting our aviaries that we need built and, you know, mammal housing that we need built over the next few months, as much of it as we can, so that by, you know, April, May, June of next year, 2024, we will be in a much better position than we were this year. And that is, that's going to happen. And um, that's, uh, you know, so that's fantastic. And um, other things that helped us get through, you know, of course, were 
again, the support of our community and um, the hard labor of our volunteers and our interns and our staff, new and old. So uh, let's just, if we can do like a little roll call of our interns, Julia Bautista and uh, Maya Hughes, a new intern who just got here from South Dakota to go to school and became an intern right away. Um, Julia, Julia has been an intern for, you know, basically several years, which, you know, is, um, and she's a wonderful part of our community. And then we have, you know, a bunch of new staff people, um, Mallory and Ash and uh, Natalie and Sarah and Rihanna and our old staff Desiree and Lucinda and myself. And uh, we got through the summer and it basically was... uh, It was largely we were pretty effective and it was a great summer for for barn swallows and cliff swallows and violet green swallows our program was very successful we treated and released well over a couple of dozen of those guys and that was pretty exciting and um, we also you know was an amazing year for Virginia possums we had more of those guys this year than we like almost double that in babies and um, but they're mostly all released now and uh, next up for us in the care center aside from building as I was mentioning is you know we're entering our seabird season and uh, we did receive a grant from the Oiled Wildlife Care Network, which we're a member of that organization. That we're, It's a network of wildlife care providers. And um, there's, you know, several turnkey operations to respond to oil spills up and down the coast. We happen to have one of those operations here in Humboldt County at Cal Poly Humboldt. There is the Marine Wildlife Care Center, which is where oiled birds, if they were to be, if there was a catastrophic oil spill, Bill in the Humboldt area, Humboldt area, then we would um, wash those impacted wild animals, predominantly birds. They would be assuming it was in a bay spill, and though they would be washed, you know, of the oil up at the facility on Cal Poly. But then after that, for post post wash conditioning, you know, before they're ready to be released, where they get their feathers back together and they recover from whatever debilitation the oil had caused them, that would happen in pools at our facility. And right now we don't have any of those. Um, well, we have a makeshift temporary pool, but we don't have any proper seabird pools that were um, in order to do a job like that. And the OWCN did grant us $11,000 to build three seabird pools, which I applied for that grant back in June and was extremely thrilled that it was approved. So um, we will have our seabird pools and we'll have them, we'll have them soon. Um, as soon as this silly COVID thing is over, I'm going to start building one now because the next season that happens for us is seabird season. You know, every October, September, October, 
Um, aquatic birds return from the breeding grounds to winter here in Humboldt County. We have brants, which are a beautiful black and white sea goose that are constantly in Humboldt Bay over the winter. Um, freshwater ducks like teals, well teals are used for salt too, um, but uh, northern pintails are, come back. Uh, Bufflehead come back, surf scoters come back, uh, western grebes come back, loons come back, and they spend their winter here. And um, they sometimes they show up, sometimes they're youngsters, you know, they show up and storms are happening at the exact same time and they're storm tossed and, you know, thrown about here and there and everywhere and we get them get western grebe juvies off of beaches you know that's they they spent their entire childhoods on freshwater lakes and then the fall comes and they fly to the pacific ocean and just in time for the storms to hit and so it can be you know it can be rough for those guys and we need to be here for them and uh, cackling geese come back and you know obviously this is all happening inside of an environment where there's still avian influenza but for the most part, we're not really seeing it in our patients, and um, so I we're definitely we are definitely providing care for aquatic um, aquatic birds, and we will do doing even more so once we have our pools built, and that's what's coming next for us. The um, another thing that's going on is right now, speaking of uh, bird illnesses, there's an avian botulism outbreak going on in Tulare Lake down in the um, Kern Wildlife Refuge that's um, about, you know, roughly, roughly a little bit west and halfway between Fresno and Bakersfield. So a little northwest of Bakersfield and southwest of Fresno is the Kern Wildlife Refuge. And there has been an avian botulism outbreak and um, the OWCN, it's not oil, but the OWCN is managing um, the state's response to these um, sick birds uh, there uh, at the behest of California Department of Fish and Wildlife. So avian botulism, just a quick thing is, you know, that is a bacteria that springs up in times of uh, depleted water and increased heat. Um, there can be dead biological matter and the botulism exists in the soil and it, it basically has a, a growth surge because uh, the conditions are right for it for reproduction and stuff like that. So basically it's all over these, you know, dead fish or something like that. And um, ducks, other waterfowl come and eat from the fish or eat the insects that are on the fish and um, and thereby contract avian botulism which is a disease that you know largely impacts uh, by causing paralysis which can be like lead to drowning but it just leads to death eventually unless they're treated and as you might remember Bird Ally X has a botulism hospital set up on the lower Klamath refuge at the California and Oregon border and has and our co-directors of Bird LAX, January Bill and Marie Travers, have you know developed really uh, effective protocols 
for dealing with avian botulism and a lot of those protocols of course are getting to be used by the state of california now here there in tulare and uh even more so um owcn has asked bird LAX to supply um trained staff to uh, run the uh, response. So many people who have, were either past staff or interns here at Humboldt Wildlife Care Center and got trained here are have uh, been working down there in Tulare. So it's really fabulous. You know, one of the first things, well, first of all, Bird LIX was initially founded to be a team of, you know, not like the Hall of Justice League level of superheroes, but basically a team of superheroes who could go in and help whenever there was a place that was needed. And in fact, that's how we came into Humboldt County. You know, we came into the Humboldt Wildlife Care Center because there was a sudden need here that the care center, as it was then staffed, couldn't handle. And we came in and we basically uh, took care of it here. And circumstances here led to us staying. And here we still are now, you know, um, 12 years later. But having that team that can go and help out wherever they're needed, wherever wildlife needs us, uh, is a, you know, and having that team be sustainable has been a really, has been a major project that's among many major projects. So this is the first year that we actually have a solid Bird LAX response team. And there are excellent people that I'm very proud of right now working down there on that response. And um, we get paid by the state for doing it. So those people are getting paid and Bird Alex gets paid for that. So we're not fundraising off of that. You know, our other work remains on, you know, that's up to, that's, that's you guys. But this is not something that, you know, we're not saying, oh, please help us, you know, support our staff down there because they are being supported. They're being supported by the, um, by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife and the Old Wildlife Care Network and the people of California because that is public money. So, um, anyway, but it's, it's, uh, it fills me with a lot of, uh, you know, I'm pride in our staff that they're able to be down there and pride in our organization that we have, you know, we founded. It's, we have been an organization now for 14 years and, uh, we're gradually getting, we're meeting, we're meeting our challenges. So, um, yeah, that's basically it that I have about that. Uh, really proud of the people that are down there. Val, Soro, Catherine, uh, and more, more are going down later. Um, and the response should be going through the end of November when the weather by then should have turned cold enough that the botulism has pretty much stopped in its tracks. So, uh, you know, you can, uh, you know, you can maybe check out the OWCN uh, World Wildlife Care Network's uh, website to see, you know, updated pictures of the response and uh, learn more about it. But I know they've had a couple, a couple hundred birds have already passed through care. So, uh, wish these guys luck and uh, yeah, they're doing great work. Thanks. That's, you know, that's basically where we're at right now 
uh, oh yeah, there's a couple other things. Just really quickly, uh, one is is that we just had a cover story in the North Coast Journal. So if you haven't seen it, it's called Second Chances, and you can probably find it online. Second Chances. It's on the North Coast Journal, and uh, Thaddeus Greason wrote it, and really excellent, uh, excellent piece. And I was very happy to see it, see him, see us get that kind of coverage. So thank you to the North Coast Journal for picking up our story. And also, um, this is the last day that rounding up at the North Coast Co-op uh, for our Seeds for Change month. So I, uh, I have to tell you that I haven't been to the co-op. I haven't been out of my apartment in uh, a week thanks to COVID isolation. And so I missed the last week there, but I can tell you that it is thrilling to be in line at the co-op and hear cashiers say, would you like to round up for the Wildlife Care Center? And hear people say, yes, yes, I would. Here, could you add another dollar on? And I'm just like, I really, it's, I don't mean to be undercover eavesdropping on you, but when you, if, when you're in line there and you were being asked, there was a chance I was in line with you going, yay, thanks. So, one of the things I haven't, I didn't mention from the summer that was happening, you know, there's a, a fantastic seabird called the common myrrh. And They're referred to as guillemots in Europe, but here we refer to them as myrrhs. And they are guillemots, pigeon guillemots are also here, and they are kind of cousins. They look very similar in profile in a, in a lot of ways, but their coloration is very different. But um, common myrrhs are truly pelagic seabirds, and the only time they come ashore is when it's time for them to, you know, <coughs> excuse me is uh, for breeding season, when it's time for them to, you know, uh, make another generation. And we're fortunate here on the North Coast that we live, you know, there are myrrh breeding colonies very close by, that myrrhs, uh, myrrhs raise, have, co have a breeding colony where they raise their young uh, just off of Trinidad on a flat iron, big, big, big rock out there and then there's Castle Rock up near Crescent City where they um, breed. There's other places along the California coast that they do as well but these are uh, you know really nearby and one of the interesting things about common myrrhs is that they leave the nest before they can fly. Um, an adult myrrh weighs in the neighborhood of 800 to 1000 grams. And at about 400 grams, these guys will jump off the rock into the water. And they get let out to sea by their fathers. And their mothers might go and uh, have another nest before, you know, with a different gentleman. While the Papa number one takes baby number one out, you know, out to sea. Where uh, he continues to provide parental care and also does some teaching how to hunt and fish, you know. So it's an important part of their natural history, and it's completely normal. Um, and unfortunately, 
for some natural reasons and for some, of course, unnatural reasons, such as human, you know, commerce and boats and fishing and stuff like that, um, babies might get separated from their father. Something could happen to the dad. Um, something could happen to the baby. But often we will treat, uh, you know, common MERS over the course of the summer when, you know, they... If something, you know, if there's a crisis that causes them to leave the rock early, like one year there were fireworks, I remember, uh, that were being launched from boats in Trinidad, in, outside, outside of Trinidad Harbor that disrupted the um, colony. And we started getting babies in very early in July. And they were coming in quite, quite small, 150 to 200 grams. And that's pretty small. They should, they should still be up on that rock at that size, not floating around in the water but um it does happen and when we get them you know we treat them and keep them for you know until they are old enough to be on their own and but typically we they're you know more like three or four hundred grams when they're already in the water and they might get separated from their parent and those guys you know start coming in more the end of july beginning of august and typically by the beginning of September, we have, uh, for the most part, released them. They have gotten to their, uh, you know, independent age and they're ready to go. And this year we, uh, we were not getting babies in and I was like, you know, well, I wonder what's going on, but I'm also... You know, we don't really have the facility right now, so at least it's not something I have to worry about. Like, hey, where, where are we going to put all these mer babies? But as it turns out, we have um, at the right on July 29th, we got in our first common mer baby, and then we got in a couple of more, and a couple of more, and through August, we um, admitted. About eight, we got in about eight mer babies through the month of August, and it wasn't bad, but it was definitely we were definitely hearing, you know, and then there was some dead ones being found, and the guys that were coming in were coming in in pretty bad shape, but and you know they were coming in in three to four hundred grams, but they were coming in skinny at three to four hundred grams, whereas a healthy bird who is, you know, leaves the rock at three to 400 grams is in good body condition. But these guys were coming in anemic and pretty skinny and really very skinny. And so like they were more debilitated than is typical for just a baby who is separated from their parent. And so it, seemed, it implied that they'd been separated from their parent for a while. Um, that starvation was the primary thing that we were seeing and but coming in it's such it's so debilitated that it was re really difficult getting them you know back so and then since the 1st of September we've admitted 45 more so right at the time that we would be releasing them we're getting them in and these are guys, like I said, that are really, really thin, like maybe, you know, 60% of their body weight remains. So this is a, this is not normal for us. And there's, you know, 
and there was, it, I mean, it's really unprecedented for us to get this many Merck babies in this late in the year. So, at, like I said, it's been a very difficult, you know, the mortality has been pretty high. Um, I mean, they're so anemic and uh, so skinny and filled with parasites. But so, you know, we can treat the parasites and we ha and we do. And right now we have, I believe, um, seven birds in care. And they're doing well and should be released I would say within a you know within a week or two these guys should all be you know have recovered and been released but it why are they here well you know I began looking into that and noticed that right at the time we first started seeing them back in early August um, ocean current from the north came down that was excessively warm it was like they referred to it as a heat migration you know there's an article in the uh, August 8th uh, the San Francisco Chronicle uh, talking about this and 7 to 9 degrees Fahrenheit above normal surface temperature water coming down from you know the north uh, Alaska British Columbia and moving southward and that's never a good sign that's never good for seabirds this raise in ocean temperature drives the uh, you know colony failures and it drives it drives mortality events and it totally messes up the food supply and especially for a young bird you know, I think one of the things it can do is, is it can drive uh, prey fish deeper. And these young birds are not ready for that kind of deep sea diving in order to get those fish. So that's, you know, it causes a big problem for them. And I think that that's largely what's going on. And if we look around, even beyond the common MERS, there's also a sea lion mortality event going on right now with uh, both leptospirosis and demoic acid up and down the uh, California coast and into Washington as well as Oregon and probably Washington. I don't know about Washington specifically, but I know in Oregon this is the case. And in Oregon, the, in Oregon, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife requested people to not pick up the baby MERS, claiming that they were in uh, they were not a, th a species of concern or. Uh, and that resources were too thin to take care of them. But that's uh, that's not something that we're saying here, that's for sure. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife has not said anything like that, and we have certainly not said anything like that. Uh, you know, the resources, the resources to take care of our patients um, are always thin. That's where you guys come in. I mean, that's what, that's always what happens, you know, when we had 250 pelicans in, the resources for that were quite thin, you know, and, but it's not like we manufacture those resources, we ask people for it, we ask you, we let you know what's going on, and we ask you for your help, and you deliver, so that's what's happening with our common MERS, we're at, we ask for help, and people deliver, we're asking for help right now, this is something we are definitely asking for help with, um, 
they're going through a lot of fish they go through a lot of water they go through um, a lot of labor so you know it's definitely something we ask for help with but uh, just to have just to say that oh there are species of little concern so therefore let them suffer on the beach hmm boy I'll tell you one thing you don't want to find out that St. Peter's a myrrh with uh, policies like that but in any case uh, the same the diseases that are impacting come you know not the diseases the conditions that are impacting common myrrhs are also impacting sea lions Demolic acid is something that is driven by ocean temperatures and uh, agricultural runoff. You know, could be it's basically a it's basically a harmful algal bloom. So you know, excessive nutrients from things like nitrogen from agricultural runoff can really drive that. And and warmer oceans make those conditions for algal blooms better too. So that and leptospirosis. Is it's a bacterial infection, and it's natural. I mean, it, it, it occurs every. There's a cycle. You know, 2018 was a bad year for leptospirosis in California sea lions, and this was not like scheduled in the pattern to be a bad year. And it, but it's worse than it's supposed to be, and it may, I don't believe it's as bad as 2018 was yet. But still, California sea lions in large numbers both at North Coast Marine Mammal Center and down in Marin at the Marin Headlands uh, the Marine Mammal Center there both having a huge increase in the number of leptospirosis patients and the mortality that you know the dead animals found on beaches is also you know and it's alarming to see that well all of this is happening in a world where you know what back in so yeah back in mid-september i believe it was september 13th there was an article in the guardian earth well outside safe operating space for humanity scientists find and basically the article was about you know how the conditions that allowed for the rise of our current civilization the environmental conditions the world in which human beings lived that allowed for that doesn't really exist anymore and that's you know sobering thought but my first thought because you know this we were already had received you know a couple of you know a couple of dozen uh, mer babies by that point at this odd time of year and I was like well obviously it's outside of safe operating space for more than just humanity and you know I mean this is not a this is not a podcast about um, anthropocentric uh, human behavior this is um, so we could do that right that's a pretty safe topic. It's an easy topic is what I'm saying. I mean, like it's an easy topic to both um, prove and complain about. But that's not what we're doing right now. I'm just saying that right now we are in uh, a period that is, you know, it's unprecedented. We don't know, we don't even know what's going to happen next. But the conditions are completely and totally destabilizing. You know, you think about that 
common MERS have been around in the form that they're in for, you know, well over 20 million years. Like that's a platform. They are, they are a platform. They are a kind of point of view that has existed and was able to exist for over 20 million years. Unchanged. But that's changing now. Sea lions, you know, don't have quite the longevity, you know, they're, they're mammals, they're younger. But the same difference, you know, California sea lions um, have thrived on the California coast for, you know, millions of years. Well, maybe not in their present form, millions of years. Tens of thousands of years, certainly. This is the summer that, you know, forest fires raced through Lahaina, or wildfires raced through Lahaina. There's killed 98 people. This is the summer that torrential rain hit Libya and burst two dams. There's 4,200 dead, 9,000 missing. Just yesterday, just yesterday, New York City flooded. I grew up in New Jersey, and the first time I remember hearing about New York City flooding I was during Superstorm Sandy in... 2011, 2012, 2012, yeah, it was in 2012, and Christie was the governor of New Jersey, and remember when Obama went and visited him, and Christie hugged Obama, and it was a big, a big tragedy for the Republican Party, everybody was mad at Chris Christie for that, but uh, the storm surge, you might remember, flooded subways in lower Manhattan, is a I'd never seen anything like that in my life. Water pouring into the subways. Never never heard of such a thing. And now it's happened several times since then. Right? Several times since then, Lower Manhattan or Manhattan has flooded. The um, sewer in Manhattan can handle rainfall 1.75 inches an hour. And yesterday it got overwhelmed because it came down harder and faster than that. And it did that two years ago, and it did it in 2015, and um, so, you know, I remember uh, nearly 20 years ago, I used to interview people for a project I was working on, and I was basically just uh, getting anecdotal evidence about the environment changing, you know, so I talked to people who were noticing in Texas, say, you know, the absence of pollinators or talking to people about, you know, um, 
In 2003, I was working in Los Angeles, you know, and we had a seabird wreck. And in Los Angeles, we were already dealing with climate change in 2003. We were already dealing with this mildly warmer ocean. We were already dealing with overfishing. We were already dealing with agricultural runoff. So ocean health in Southern California 20 years ago was something we were already talking about. We were already wondering what the future was going to hold. And when we would get, when seabirds would have a mortality event, now, you know, this was something that, you know, when, as you're, you know, you go back more than 20 years, and for the most part, you regard a seabird mortality event as relatively normal. Often it means that it was a good breeding year for them. So while it's counterintuitive, you could look at a mortality event as a kind of good news. But that's not the way it is now. Because mortality events aren't driven by the population of the seabirds. They're driven by the um, poor conditions of the sea. And I remember saying to somebody back, you know, in 2003, okay, well, you know, so they're coming in starving to death. And we can fix that. You know, we put them in pools. We set them up the way they need to be set up. We learn how to do that by, you know, um, mastering our craft. And then we convince them to eat, and they do, or we pump them full of food if they won't eat, and they do. And they get their body condition back, they get their health back, and then we can release them. But what what are we releasing them into? And, you know, that was an uncomfortable question for my my mentors and people who were training me back then 20 years ago. I was a much younger person in the field and nobody wanted to hear what I had to say about things, maybe. I don't know. But all I know is, is that when I brought that up, I was people thought I was suggesting that we shouldn't be treating these birds. And that is not what I meant at all. And uh, I just meant, what are we going to do about the ocean? We need to take care of that, too. You know, uh, the first major event I worked was Western Grebes in Washington when I was, uh, you know, still uh, just a brand new wildlife rehabilitator two years into the field in the year 2001. And we got in a hundred Western Grebes. And it was the first time I had encountered the idea that there were people that thought we were wasting money by taking care of them. And uh, the Seattle Times ran a story about our, you know, operation taking care of these 100 Western Greeks who were basically like uh, exactly like what I was discussing earlier. They were largely juveniles. They showed up um, on the West Coast, you know, in this case, Washington, just at Ocean Shores. And they um, arrived at the same time as the Pacific Storm arrived. And so they were basically... by the, by the heavy surf thrown up on the beach. And then they were tra- trapped there. And so they were brought to us, these hundred birds. And it was a very, you know, uh, terrific thing for me to be personally a part of because I learned about myself in that, that that was something I was good at, that I could, like, you know, do emergency response. I could work 16-hour days until the job was done. And it was good to find out, you know, and I was like, oh, this is what I want to do for sure. I mean, I was already a wildlife rehabilitator, but that kind of emergency response became very appealing to me. And I went on to, you know, do 
um, respond to oil spills for the next nine years after that, and uh, which is what I was doing when I arrived here in Humboldt County. And through that time, you know, I mean, I met a lot of seabird biologists and I would say, well, is this climate change? They, oh, we don't know. Is this climate change? We don't know. Um, we can't say. It could be, but the data is not there. We don't know. We can't say conclusively that what you're seeing is from climate change. So, you know, and it's, that's frustrating because of the uh, need to act. And... If you're looking for science to justify the action, that can leave you acting too late. Because certainty in science is a hard thing to come by. And if you need certainty to act, by the time you've, by the time there is certainty, uh, what you wanted to preserve or who you wanted to protect or who you wanted to save could already be dead. Urgency does not allow for certainty. And certainty is uh, a luxury that people with urgency can't necessarily afford. But here it is now, you know, 20 years later, 20, 15 years later, 10 years later, five years later. And we are now living in a world where the impacts of climate change are not deniable. We may not even know, we may not even be able to say, oh, well, certainly This is climate change. We may not be able to scientifically say with certainty that all of these impacts that we're seeing are climate change, but we can certainly, um, with our uh, powers of deductive reasoning and our knowledge of the historical record, notice that things are out of whack, that Manhattan floods every couple of years now, that Lahaina is no longer on the map. That ice is off of the mountains. We can see that, that there's no sea ice in the Arctic, or, I mean, significantly less sea ice in the Arctic. All of these things, we can see all of that. But we still have to, and, and we have to act in the face of it. And, you know, for us at Humboldt Wildlife Care Center, the action, it doesn't change. It's like, oh, we have to drop what we're doing and go save the ocean. Or, oh, we have to drop what we're doing and go reduce the global temperature. Oh, we have to drop, we don't have to drop what we're doing. We have to continue what we're doing. We have to continue being here to provide care for the animals who struggle through the conditions that are well outside the safe operating space for their species and their natural history. And we're not interfering with evolution.
or not. That would be an absurd argument to make. But I'm certain that there would be people that would make it. This was the summer of trolling for us. Things I did post that did get some traction were had people saying things to me like, how can you take care of raccoons and call yourself a bird ally? Like, this is the kind of nonsense that people would want to waste our time with on the internet to engage us with. Um, you know, we live in a time when there is a large faction of people who absolutely would rather be um, standing in the way of addressing the environmental crisis that we're in by denying it or by or um, just blockading progress on it because it interferes with their livelihood or their sense of who they are or their machismo I don't know what it interferes with you know uh, you know the the uh, the truck parts place that the former president just spoke at was like, yeah, electric vehicles would put us out of business. And so, so what? So what? You know, like that's, um, sorry, but, um, yeah, it's, um, it's, it costs too much money to not destroy the world. That's that's a that's a that's a pretty lame argument. So anyway, that's where we find ourselves today. And we have six MERS in care. Seven seven. We have seven MERS in care. And they're doing really well. And I don't know what's gonna happen in the ocean when we go to put them back. I don't know what's going on out there. And I don't know how to put fish in the sea. But giving those guys a second chance to figure it out for themselves. Get, and making sure that they're on the stage. Is a way for us to assist evolution. To assist these guys. And to assist the uh, continued... Um, existence of you know species that have a right to be here and that the changing conditions aren't just the changing conditions it's not just like oh well things change species change the world had changed many many times in 20 million years but it never changed in such a way that MERS couldn't live here It's hard not to feel anger and despair in the face of the damage that people have done. In the hubris of deciding that their lives count more than any other life on earth. It's astonishing. It's astonishing that people believe that their lives, that human lives matter more than the rest of it. That's um, profoundly non-scientific and is basically religious. 
But even if you do believe that um, a, a god gave humans dominion over the earth and all of its creatures, um, you can't possibly be arguing that it that they that that meant that they were ours to do with what we want and if we wreck them all so be it they're our toys who cares if i break them so anyway well i don't really have a way out of this i don't have a way out of the jam we're in and i don't have a way out of this discussion because there is no resolution for it there's only we go back to the We go back to our, you know, work. We put our heads down. We dig in. And we keep doing it. And we keep letting everybody know what we're doing. And we keep trying to promote a coexistence. And we struggle to get the funding. And... We go over and buy the fish, and we hook up the hoses to the spigot, and we fill the pools, and we feed the birds, and we teach the raccoons, and we raise the opossums, and we rescue the skunks, we collect leaves for the deer. worms for the swallows we buy chips for the volunteers and we put gas in our cars and we drive to Oric and we pick up a myrrh from somebody who drove him down and we rue the contradictions And we cry over the losses. And we celebrate the successes. And we keep moving forward. And thankfully we can. Thankfully with your support, we're still here. This was New Wild Review. Volume 4, Episode 1, Gratitude, Progress, and Despair. If you'd like to donate to support our work, go to www.birdallyx.net and you'll be able to find a donate button there and you can just click on that and whatever you can afford we'd be happy to receive it thanks a lot thank you for your support new wild review is produced by bird ally x your host monty mary